If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Welcome back to our special podcast series, delving into everything you wanted to know, but were afraid to ask, about some of history's biggest subjects. For today's episode, we've been joined by Professor Mark Stoyle of the University of Southampton to tackle questions on the civil wars of the 1640s. Putting the questions to him was our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. Welcome to the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask series. Today we're going to be talking about the civil wars of the 1640s and I'm really pleased today to be speaking with Mark Stoyle, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Southampton. He's written widely on the civil wars of the mid-17th century, including on the propaganda and the human cost of the conflicts, and most recently about the women who joined the armies of King and Parliament. The format of the episode is as before. We're going to explore the most popular search queries put to Google, along with some reader questions submitted on social media. So, Mark, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. And to get us started, the the headline of this podcast is everything you wanted to know about the Civil War. So can we look at that term as this series of conflicts is also known by other names, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been very controversial. What should the Civil War be termed? And at the time, of course, people at first didn't know what was happening. Um, They were just talking about, you know, these unhappy conflicts, these troubles and so forth. Um, And then once the war was over um, and the king's forces had been defeated, it was then also difficult to know what to call the conflict because both sides tended to use different sort of terms. Um, So from the king's perspective, of course, the Civil War was a huge rebellion uh, against royal power. And so particularly um, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, when the the, the crown was sort of restored to the Stuarts, they would refer to it as the Grand Rebellion or the Great Rebellion. And of course, at this time, rebellion was seen as a very bad thing, you know, as a very sort of negative word. And of course, from the point of view of those who fought for the Parliament, um, it wasn't a rebellion at all. It it was much more a sort of a fight for English liberties uh, and against what was seen as a sort of um, tyrannical form of government, if you like. And then once the conflict had sort of died down, um, there were these sort of partisan names that were used, you know, should one call it the Grand Rebellion? Should one call it something else? And just as in sort of modern day Northern Ireland, people actually would often use euphemisms when they were talking about it. So they would call it these recent troubles, um, the recent troubled times, our unhappy divisions. So there were lots and lots of different ways of referring to the wars. And the way that you uh, termed them yourself would often reveal quite a lot about your own sort of uh, political views. Mm-hmm. So, so for the purposes of, of this conversation, we're, we're yeah. talking about the the, the civil war um, the, of the 1640s, the the series of conflicts. Um, so, when when did these series of conflicts take place? Well, um, the the Great Civil War, the First Civil War, that took place between 1642 and 46, uh, and that was fought uh, between the forces of King and Parliament in England. 
Um, and then um, there was also sort of conflicts going on in other parts of the British Isles at the same time. Um, so in Ireland, uh, there was uh, a, a, an uprising and there were a series of bitter conflicts fought in that country uh, between uh, 1641 and then on into the later 1640s. There were also um, wars taking place um, in Scotland and particularly um, for, for our purposes, um, in 1644, the Scots actually uh, came over the border and took part in England's civil war. Uh, so that was sort of widening out into a broader conflict where the Scots were fighting on the side of Parliament. And that, uh, the, great, the great civil war, the great English civil war, that came to an end in 1646 with the defeat of the king. Uh, but then there were subsequent conflicts. So there was a second civil war uh, in 1648 and then a third and final uh, civil war in the early 1650s. So, so the Google questions that we're looking at today, um, these mostly um, pertain to that that conflict between King and Parliament that yes. you mentioned. Um, so, if we can go into that a bit more, then the top Google question for that is: is why and how did that start? Well, uh, the question of why the Great Civil War broke out is one of the most controversial, really, in English history, um, and there's no really simple answer to it. Well, the ruling king at the time of the Civil War was Charles the First. Um, he'd come to the throne in 1625 uh, with sort of great expectations on the part of his subjects, um, but things had rapidly gone wrong. And there were all sorts of different reasons that historians put forward to explain this. Um, one thing that was not popular was that Charles had married a French Catholic wife um, very early at the beginning of his reign. Uh, this was not popular with his sort of zealously uh, Protestant subjects. So there was that problem. There was a problem that some believed that the king's own religious principles were slightly suspect and that he himself was veering towards Catholicism. That was probably unjust, but it was a, a widely held suspicion. And at the same time, there was a lot of conflict between the king and his domestic critics in Parliament. And these difficulties over religion and finance uh, eventually became so great uh, that in the late 1620s, the king decided to do without Parliament altogether for a time and to enter on a period of personal rule. Uh, and that seems to have sort of, um, although the tensions appeared to have died down, they were still sort of seething beneath the surface. Um, and these sort of conflicts over religion um, and over the sort of the direction of government, if you like, uh, were eventually to spring to the surface again um, in the later 1630s uh, when the king was forced, um, or at least uh, he... he he um, introduced a new prayer book in Scotland, which was violently opposed by his Scottish subjects. Uh, and so in order to put uh, that rebellion as he saw it down, he had to raise an army in England. To have to do that, he had to call a parliament. But once the parliament was called, uh, the MPs uh, refused to do what the king was bidding them to do and instead sort of demanded that changes should be made domestically. And this led to all sorts of conflicts within England itself. So we've, we've covered the, lots of the causes there in, in a great answer um if i can jump in with another one from google and um, mm. how how did it start what what were the physical events that led to war being declared well, um, during um, 1641, there was more and more sort of tension, if you like, between the king and his leading opponents in Parliament. And he became more and more sort of anxious about where things were going and felt that he must do something to try and get out of this sort of um, uh, process that was turning him into almost the shadow of a king rather than a real king. And I think the final sort of um, the final straw for him was that word uh, began to circulate or rumours at least began to circulate that his opponents in Parliament might attempt to impeach his wife, Henrietta Maria, the Queen, and that she might, as a result, be brought in danger of death. And so partly for fear for his wife, partly for anger and rage at um, the way that his um, critics in Parliament were sort of seizing uh, many of the powers which he saw as completely his own, um, he resolved uh, to strike at the sort of the head of the Hydra, if you like, and to arrest uh, some of his leading opponents in, in the Parliament. Um, he marched to the House of Commons with a group of armed men, um, attempted uh, to sort of seize the persons of these MPs, but they'd been warned in advance and they'd escaped. And the king's appearance uh, in Parliament with a force of um, armed men at his heels, uh, this created sort of outrage in London. Uh, there was tumult on the streets. There were sort of popular disturbances. And eventually the king, uh, fearful for the life really of his family, uh, fled from the capital uh, and left London. And at that point, you actually have a physical separation between king and Parliament 
Parliament. Uh, the Parliament then begins to sort of establish itself as really a government in its own right. Uh, and the king sets off uh, to find support elsewhere in the country. And thus you can see there's this sort of divergence now has become physical between the supporters of the Parliament in London and the supporters of the king initially at York. And once you've got these two separate sort of heads of government, if you like, it wouldn't be long before an actual civil war uh, began to break out. And during the following months, between sort of January 1642, when the attempt on the five members was made, and the summer of 1642, England gradually falls apart into two armed camps. Well, that that leads perfectly into another very popular Google term. Um, How did people choose sides in this civil war? Oh, well, again, that's a a really huge question. And it's one that I spent all of my career really looking into. There are lots and lots of different answers. Um, I think some people uh, made a very sort of principal choice for king or parliament, and there were different reasons for doing so. Um, Those who were most zealously Protestant or Puritan, they suspected that the king and his wife and his leading ministers were leading England into a more sort of Catholic direction. So they tended to support the parliament, which they saw as the upholder of sort of zealous Protestantism. Uh, Many of the sort of more religiously conservative Protestants, though, they were very happy with the Church of England as it was. Uh, They saw Charles I as its protector, um, and they were very suspicious that the Puritans were trying to change the church and make it more radical. So sort of conservative members of the Church of England would often support the king. And obviously the few Catholics in England supported the king as well, in large part, because they were terrified about what the Puritans might do to them if they took control. So there is a, a series of religious issues. And I would argue that those are probably the most important. But there were lots of cultural issues as well. So some people who enjoyed sort of traditional festivities and games and pastimes and liked indulging in those on Sundays, they were very opposed to the sort of Puritan drive for moral reformation and the attempts to almost get rid of these old festivities and force people into a much more sort of pious lifestyle. And a lot of those people supported the king for sort of cultural reasons, if you like. Um, There were also ethnic reasons tied up with this. Um, Parliament tended to be associated with a sort of quite a a sort of a a fervent sense of Englishness. Um, And in other parts of the Kingdom of England, um, Wales and Cornwall in particular, the king was associated more with a sort of, he was seen as a British figure who was ruling over all of his British subjects, rather than this with this more sort of narrowly, sort of intolerantly English interest, which was sometimes associated with Parliament. That's one of the reasons that that Wales and Cornwall tended to support uh, the king. Um, There were also constitutional issues, of course. Some people who were very worried about English liberties saw Parliament as their guarantor, would support them. Others who thought that the king, you know, was the head of state and must be supported under any circumstances and thus rallied to Charles. And then there were many people, of course, who didn't pick a side at all, but they were really sort of dragooned into fighting for king or parliament by the more zealous partisans of either side. So there were almost as many different reasons for choosing sides, in a way, as there were different people within the kingdom. There are these sorts of broad um, patterns, if you like, which explain how many people reacted. But then on a local level, there were some who chose for quite personal reasons. It would often be perhaps factional reasons uh, that, you know, that you might have a group of local enemies who supported the king, so you decided to support the parliament. So there's a huge raft of different reasons that help to explain the choices of side that people eventually made. Sure, sure. There's an awful lot going there and and clearly far from a binary conflict. But um, obviously lots of people will be familiar with the terms uh, roundheads and cavaliers. Um, I wonder if we could look at those terms in particular. How did they they come by those names? Well, this is a fascinating question as well, and it sheds a lot of light on, you know, the, the identity of the two different sides. Um, So if we deal with the name Cavalier first, um, that's a sort of an an anglicised form of the the Spanish word Caballero, which means sort of trooper or armed horseman. And it also tends to be associated with gentility in our period. So when people on the streets of London started to call the king's supporters cavaliers in late 1641 and early 42, they were really suggesting here they were associating the king's party with foreignness, uh, with sort of violence, and with also this idea of sort of gentlemen on horseback, if you like, um, overriding the ordinary people. So there's some interesting connections there of xenophobia, um, anti-Catholicism, and perhaps a degree of sort of class uh, conflict as well. 
Um, the term roundhead, um, it's rather more disputed as to where this really comes from. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, the answer you'll most often be given is that um, the Puritan apprentice boys of London, who were so sort of prominent in supporting the parliamentary cause, they tended to have very um, short uh, haircuts. They had sort of shaved heads, if you like, in today's parlance. So this was the idea that the sort of the, the royalists looked down um, on the roundheads uh, because they were sort of socially inferior, if you like, uh, to gentlemen who would have had sort of beautiful, long, flowing heads of hair. So that's one idea, that the term roundhead really sort of epitomises this social conflict between low-born apprentices and high-born gentlemen. But there are other possible reasons as well. Um, at this time, uh, it was... Uh, well, not customary, but occasionally those who were seditious and against the government would have their ears lopped off as a punishment. And some people have suggested that the term roundhead is actually referring to these uh, Puritan radicals who'd had their ears lopped off and thus had completely round heads. Um, there are other sort of reasons that are put forwards as well. But I think this idea of it being uh, a, a sort of a slur against people for their sort of low-born social status is probably the most commonly accepted one. It's so interesting. And is it fair to say that it's a, a bit of a myth that one side was purely aristocratic and one side was purely middle classes or lower gentry? Because it seems quite broad. Yeah, exactly. Because in a way, I think if we think about it, we can see the civil war would never have taken place in that case. If the king had only been able to rely on noblemen and gentlemen, they would never have been able to raise armies. Um, so I think it's probably true to say that there's a there's a slightly larger number of noblemen and gentlemen probably on the king's side but there are also many nobles and gentlemen on parliament's side as well and the same is true lower down the social hierarchy yes um, in london and perhaps in certain other parts particularly in the southeast essex would be a good example there it does seem that the majority of ordinary people are on parliament's side but in other parts of the kingdom, exactly the opposite is true. Um, Wales is famously the nursery of the king's uh, infantry, and many of his toughest uh, soldiers come from there. In Cornwall as well, many ordinary people are on the king's side. So across um, the whole kingdom, you know, there are... Um, also, you know, there are lots and lots of different reasons, as we've seen, for people supporting one side or another. And it certainly doesn't break down into a simple binary divide between lower class parliamentarians and upper class royalists. Things were much more complex than that. And these allegiances, as we've seen, often tended to rest in the end on sort of religious and cultural factors rather than socioeconomic ones. Even if we call it the British Civil War, there were yes. obviously a lot of people fighting in the conflict who were yes. British or from from British uh, territories. Um, what what can you say say about the impact of uh, other fighters, other people? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this is one of the again one of the fascinating things about the Civil War is there are so many different people involved in it. So obviously, um, people from all over the British Isles are engaged in fighting in the different kingdoms. Um, so you know, Scots in Ireland, Irish people in Scotland, English people in Ireland, and in Scotland there are all. All those um, interconnections, Cornish and Welsh people fighting all over England as well. But in addition to that, there were, there were many strangers, as contemporaries termed them, who came from beyond the British Isles. Um, and again, there's a, there's a very sort of uh, rich collection of characters who turn up um, to take part in Britain's wars. Um, some of them are actually mercenary soldiers who came here deliberately to fight. Uh, one of the classic examples of that is um, uh, Captain Carlo Phantom, um, who is a Croatian um, from the Balkans who'd come all the way to England to fight. And he was asked on one occasion why he was here. And he said, I care not for your cause. I come to fight for your half crowns and your handsome women. Um, <laughs> And that may have summed up how a number of these mercenary soldiers felt. Um, there were quite large numbers of them. The king actually had several entire regiments of French soldiers who were fighting for him. Uh, there were a number of people from the, the New World of godly Puritans um, from across the Atlantic who came back uh, from the English colonies there uh, to fight uh, on Parliament's side. Um, the king's um, own nephew, uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, um, who is himself... 
um, half German. Um, he was one of the leaders uh, of the king's armies, and there were a, a, a number of other sort of very prominent um, European soldiers who fought in the armies of both sides. And some people came from even beyond um, Europe itself. We know that there were people from uh, Mesopotamia, uh, present-day Iraq, actually fighting uh, in Parliament's armies at the end of the Civil War. So there are many, many strangers, as well as, as, well as many, many British people who take part uh, in these conflicts. This is our first reader question. This is perhaps yeah. quite a broad one again. But uh, Benjamin Russell has asked on, on our Instagram, uh, do we know roughly how many of the population supported each side in the wars? We don't really know because, of course, there were no sort of polls at the time. It's very, very difficult to get at what ordinary men and women really felt. Um, I think most historians are probably of the view that the the number of really committed partisans to either side was relatively small. But of course, even amongst those who weren't sort of absolutely dedicated to one side or another, there would have been preferences. And I mean, my own view is that most people in the end did have some sort of preference for either king or parliament. There were some people who were completely neutral and wished a plague on everyone's house if you like. Uh, but my suspicion is that their numbers proportionately were probably not as large as those who did have preferences for one side or the other. But I'm afraid we'll never be able to say accurately precisely how many people supported one side or the other, and indeed precisely how many were, were neutrals. We just don't have the figures really to make that possible. What I think we can say is that nobody was able to escape the effects of the Civil War, and that everyone would have been a sort of uh, world up, if you like, in its events in one way or another. Okay, fantastic. Well, if we can talk a bit more about those effects then. um, Some of the top Google queries, again, um, address the the battles. One of the top Google questions um, we've got about the battles is, is, what was the first battle of the Civil War? Well, the first big battle of the Civil War was the Battle of Edge Hill, uh, and that was fought in Warwickshire uh, in 1642. And of course, we know now that the the Great Civil War went on for for years, but people at the time weren't expecting that. They thought that it would be over really quickly. There would be just one big battle, if you like, and then it would all be over before Christmas. Um, And Edge Hill was the first great battle of the war. Um, Essentially, the king, having gathered lots of troops in the north of England and in Wales and the marches, was heading down towards London trying to sort of to regain his capital. Uh, parliamentary forces were obviously eager to resist this and there was a great clash between the King's forces, which were led by Charles himself, and by Parliament's forces um, led by the Earl of Essex, uh, which took place at Edge Hill, which is near uh, Kyneton in Warwickshire. And there was a terrible uh, struggle uh, that was fought on that day. Uh, many, many hundreds of people were killed, but contrary to everyone's expectations, uh, the, the battle turned out to be something of a draw. Uh, Parliament was probably worsted on the field, but it managed to sort of to hold its ground. And although some of the parliamentary troops were driven from the battlefield, um, others remained where they were. Both sides, it seems, were probably sort of shocked by the bloodiness of the encounter and by just how appalling the slaughter had been. And once the battle was over, nothing had really been decided. What that had demonstrated, I think, was that both sides were strong enough to fight against each other, but neither was strong enough to completely uh, wipe the other um, from the field, if you like. Uh, So this really opened the way for the conflict to become an even longer and more bitter one, uh, and for the trouble uh, to sort of spread out into all regions of the country. Well, you mentioned there um, that what one thing we are certain of is that it affected everyone at every every stage, if you like. Um, And that takes us into another big Google query. Uh, What was life like during the Civil War? I know that's a terribly broad question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, it depends a lot on what kind of person you were, um, but above all, perhaps in the Civil War, where you lived. Um, I think one of the crucial points to bear in mind about this conflict, the Great Civil War, is that certain areas, particularly London and the South East, never came under the King's control. Really, from the beginning of the Civil War, they were held by Parliament. And as a result, people's experiences there were bad in that they had to pay huge quantities of money towards the war. Um, Lots of men were marched away to fight. Lots of families lost, you know, their male breadwinner or their sons or their fathers, whatever. But at least in those areas, there was no actual fighting or very little. 
Things were very different, really, in the south of the country, the Midlands and the north. Um, here, there was a huge amount of fighting. Some areas were fought over again and again uh, for a number of years. And the result, as a result of that, the devastation in those areas was really awful. This was true of the areas around Oxford, for example, um, the Severn Valley, uh, large areas of the southeast, large parts of the north. Here you had different armies marching and countermarching, uh, taking provisions, plundering and stealing, uh, sometimes beating up local civilians, uh, conscripting men to fight. I think in those areas, uh, in certain parts of the war, law and order had almost sort of broken down by the end of the conflict. And things got so bad um, that large numbers of ordinary countrymen rose up under the guise of clubmen, as they termed themselves, and wished to plague on both sides and tried to drive the soldiers of both sides out of their areas. And I think the fact that they were forced to do this shows just how dreadful life had become for ordinary people. And I think you could argue that as a result of plunder, um, sort of terror, really, of not knowing where the soldiers would come next, and the disease that was spread by the soldiery and so forth, these were really some of the most dreadful years that the English people have ever had to live through in certain areas of the country. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... The legacy of the war, the physical legacy of the war in terms of the injuries inflicted on individual men and sometimes women's bodies, these things went on being sort of remembered and sort of experienced every day for decades to come. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. So, so if we look at um, the armies themselves, then yes. um, can we perhaps talk about um, h- how the King's Army was formed uh, and also um, the New Model Army? That's a very key Google question there. What was the New Model Army? Well, the two armies at the beginning of the Civil War, um, obviously, both sides were sort of learning on the hoof. There hadn't been a war in England uh, for for many years. And both King and Parliament were forced to bring their troops together in rather ad hoc ways. And the King in particular tended to rely on local magnates and great men uh, to raise regiments in their areas and then to march along uh, to join him in a sort of field army. And Parliament, too, at the beginning of the Civil War, sort of relied on broadly similar methods that that great men would raise regiments in their own particular areas to fight for Parliament. Now, this was good in a way uh, because it meant that, you know, the the King and Parliament were able to raise armies quite quickly. But you can see that there were problems as well, that armies that were raised in this way had very strong sort of regional affiliations. They tended to be particularly keen to defend their own areas and unwilling to march out of them. And as time went by, uh, the Parliament in particular realised that there was a need for more professional army, uh, raised on a more national basis if possible, and prepared to sort of march um, anywhere uh, in the kingdom. 
And after one particularly bad defeat at the hands of the King's army in Cornwall in 1644, Parliament decided on a a complete uh, reorganisation of its forces. It would raise a new army, uh, which was officered almost entirely by English officers, uh, without many of the sort of experienced soldiers from Scotland and abroad who'd served in their previous armies. Um, And it would be uh, sort of provisioned and supplied centrally and able to sort of march wherever it was directed. And this was the famous New Model Army, uh, which was led by Sir Thomas Fairfax, uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, and Philip Skippen. And eventually it was this army uh, which marched out and in the Battle of Naseby, fought in 1645, completely defeated uh, the King's main field army. And that was the third of the great battles of the Civil War and the one which really sealed the King's fate in many ways. Before we move on, we probably should um, talk a little bit about one of the names in particular you mentioned there, um, Oliver Cromwell. Um, Who who was he? Where did he come from? Well, Oliver Cromwell came from East Anglia um, and he was of a a gentle family, uh, but he wasn't particularly prominent before the Civil War. You know, he was he was respectable in in his own area, if you like, uh, but he wasn't widely known. Um, He was an MP. Um, and he was also someone who is extremely committed to Parliament's cause from the very first. Um, he raised um, a, a cavalry regiment um, in East Anglia, with which he fought the king, uh, or the, the king's local forces at least, during the early years of the war. And he very quickly established a reputation as a particularly efficient and zealous parliamentarian commander. And after a series of Uh, relatively minor triumphs, if you like. He also uh, achieved a huge victory at the Battle of Marston Moor, which is where the parliamentary forces, combined with the Scots, managed to destroy uh, the King's northern forces, which were commanded by Prince Rupert of the Rhine. And it's really from that point onwards uh, that Cromwell becomes more and more prominent in the parliamentary ranks. Um, He's eventually made uh, the Lieutenant General of the New Model Army. He commands the, the cavalry of the New Model Army. And eventually Actually, the New Model Army's victories in turn are so successful uh, that Cromwell is sort of propelled to still greater heights until he eventually becomes, you know, the the, the single most important military figure uh, in the kingdom after Fairfax. And from there, he goes on to achieve uh, even greater triumphs and eventually, of course, comes to head uh, the English government um, after the execution of the king. Okay, uh, so if we jump into another reader question then. Yes. Um, William Rochester on Facebook has asked how much of an effect did the Thirty Years' War have on the conflict? So so this is the conflict 1618 to uh, 48, both in terms of military tactics and the expertise of soldiers returning from the continent. Well, I think perhaps the first thing to state on that front is how much of a sort of... Um, a psychological impact, if you like, the Thirty Years' War had, because obviously this was a dreadful conflict in Europe. Um, English men and women looked to what was going on there. During the 1630s, many were extremely glad to be spared the horrors of what was happening in Europe, and everyone feared that the English Civil War, when it began, would bring similar horrors in this country. So there was a great deal of fear uh, and sort of trepidation uh, as a result of what people had seen going on not so far away a few years before. Um, The actual impact in terms of uh, people who'd taken part in those wars, taking part in our wars, was important as well. Um, I've already mentioned the fact that uh, when the Civil War began, very few people in England had any real experience of war. You know, England had been at peace for a very long time. Most people had never taken part in any sort of conflict. So there was a massive rush um, to get hold by both King and Parliament of military professionals, those who had taken part in the Thirty Years' War, who had the most recent experience of fighting. So you did see a number of those individuals coming back uh, and being appointed uh, to important positions in the parliamentarian and royalist armies. Now, that was good in some ways, in that they brought um, a great deal of experience. uh, But in other ways, perhaps um, there were disadvantages um, that some Englishmen sort of resented being commanded uh, by foreigners in some cases, because some of them were actually foreign professional mercenary soldiers. Um, Others resented the fact that uh, people who'd taken part in the wars had been promoted above them when they thought that perhaps their sort of their social rank uh, entitled them to higher places. So I would say um, that these men were vital, um, if you like, for the training and getting people ready to fight and sort of getting um, Englishmen ready for the wars, if you like. But they did create, uh, they did attract a certain amount of uh, discontent and hostility as well. 
If, if we if we perhaps lump a couple of other questions we've got together yes. as well and talk more about the the battles in general, um, Laura Alice on Instagram has asked how were injuries treated during the Civil War, and um, someone else has asked. No, this is a question from Google actually. Um, yeah. What weapons were used as well? Well, I'll begin with the weapons and then move on to the injuries they cause, perhaps. Um, essentially, there were different different weapons for different branches of the sort of the rival services. Um, so the cavalry would tend to be armed with carbines, um, which were sort of short rifles, if you like, in modern terms, and pistols. Um, and they would also have swords. Um, the infantry, they were sort of divided up between the pikemen. Um, those were the sort of the, the most sort of strong and muscular soldiers. They would carry very long spears or pikes with which they would sort of ward off the enemy cavalry and there were also uh, large bodies of men known as musketeers and they had uh, muskets which were sort of primitive firearms Um, so musket and pike for the foot um, sword and pistol for the horse and of course both sides also had um, cannon Um, so they had trains of artillery and these were sort of relatively primitive but still very powerful cannon or lots of different kinds of these now obviously these weapons could inflict the most hideous injuries um, and I think one of the the worst sort of aspects of the civil war from the point of view of us looking back on it is the sort of appalling uh, suffering which it inflicted on the soldiers who were hurt and um, your questioner asked you know how were injuries treated Um, and it has to be said that you know initially at least and certainly in modern terms, what was done would seem fairly rudimentary. Um, At the end of a great battle, there would be large numbers of people lying about sort of terribly wounded. Um, Many of those, of course, would simply die of their wounds on the battlefield. Um, For those who couldn't walk, they would tend to be sort of loaded up on carts and then sort of taken away. And again, the thought of being sort of thrown onto a cart and then sort of driven away over sort of awful country roads for miles. I mean, that must have been torturous. Um, Both sides did establish hospitals uh, where um, wounded soldiers or maimed soldiers, as they were termed at the time, um, could be looked after. And obviously the surgeons um, did their best. Um, Some of them, you know, did a a surprisingly good job and were able to bring uh, people back from the most awful injuries. But of course, many people died as a result of wounds and infection. Um, And I think a, a 17th century military hospital would have been a fairly awful place though not nearly as bad as being sort of simply left um, on the battlefield. Um, And large numbers of men did actually manage to recover from their wounds. Um, But of course, even those who did so would have suffered from those injuries for the rest of their lives. And I'm currently involved in a big uh, project with a number of other historians from other universities. And what we're looking at is precisely, you know, the legacy of the war for these injured men. How did they uh, live with these injuries afterwards? Many of them found it very difficult to do so and obviously to make a living uh, and so they sent petitions to the authorities in which they they begged for, for aid really and assistance and there's a whole series of these petitions which still survive from ex-parliamentarian soldiers who wrote to the parliamentary authorities in the wake of parliament's victories asking for pensions to support them and then when uh, the monarchy was restored in 1660 uh, suddenly fortune's wheel turned many of these poor parliamentarian petitioners then lost their pensions but many wounded royalist soldiers now wrote to the authorities asking if they could have pensions in their stead and they too uh, were in many cases at least uh, sort of supported with financial assistance so I think the legacy of the war the physical legacy of the war in terms of the injuries inflicted on individual men and sometimes women's bodies these things went on being sort of remembered and sort of experienced every day for decades to come. So yeah, clearly the the human cost and the legacy of the conflict is staggering. But if we if we look at the the numbers, it, it, another popular query from Google is is how many died in these conflicts? Can you give an answer to that? Well, it's a very difficult question to answer because obviously we don't have the kind of statistics that we could draw on today to be able to answer it properly. Um, but some historians have sort of tried to come up with a rough estimate, um, and it's sort of. Um, 
the best guesstimate, if you like, that we can give is that perhaps somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people uh, may have died within the Kingdom of England um, as a result of the civil wars. Um, And if that is indeed the case, it would suggest that proportionately the number of people who died in England as a result of the civil wars was actually greater than the number of people who died in England as a result of uh, the First and Second World Wars put together. So that gives you some idea uh, of just how appalling the human cost of these conflicts were. Uh, and it's almost certain that things were even worse. Well, we know for certain they were even worse in Ireland and in Scotland, in Charles's other kingdoms. So the human cost of the civil wars is absolutely immense. Yeah, that, that human cost, uh, that work sounds fascinating. In your previous answer, you mentioned uh, wi- women. Uh, and yes. it's, it, this isn't in, in the top Google questions, unfortunately, but I hoped we could still talk about it. Um, you wrote for, for BBC History uh, magazine uh, a wonderful feature on women who joined the armies of the king and, and parliament. Um, what, what, would you like, what can you say about that? Well, I mean, I think in recent years, one of the, the, the really uh, exciting sort of developments in, in the, sort of the field of the history of the Civil War, people have become so much more interested in women's role in the conflict. So a lot of that is to do with how women experience the war, um, often at home, on the, on the home front, if you like. But it's important to stress that in a civil war, there is really no home front that, you know, everyone is exposed to the fighting in a way that wasn't true in, say, the First and Second World Wars. So people have been doing lots of work on women's experience of wars, the way that women look back on the civil wars after it, the way that the civil wars allowed some women sort of to move into print and to actually uh, write and even to preach in a way that hadn't been at all common before. Um, Also looking at the way in which, um, in some ways, the war gave the women uh, more sort of liberty, if you like, to do things which they wouldn't have done in the past. But at the same time, was this seen as a liberty, as any kind of uh, liberation, or was it rather that women found themselves forced into roles which they didn't really want to take on and they were glad to relinquish when they could? So there are all of these fascinating questions, if you like, about how the war affected women, how they felt about it at the time, how they looked back on it afterwards. One of the things that I've been particularly interested in is the the question of women combatants. And obviously, there weren't many women who fought in the Civil War. The great majority of the combatants were men. But there were a surprising number of women on Civil War battlefields. Um, Civil War armies were not composed exclusively of men. There were large numbers of women with them, and particularly with the King's armies, who served as, as nurses, as laundresses who were simply there uh, with their husbands or their partners or their fathers. Um, So there were large numbers of women in the train of these armies. Um, And on several occasions, they suffered really badly at the hands of opposing soldiers. Um, The worst of these incidents occurred after the Battle of Naseby in 1645, uh, when Parliament soldiers actually massacred a number of the Royalist female camp followers uh, and savagely mutilated some of the others, claiming that they were prostitutes and Irish women. And there are even hints they may have suspected some of them of being witches. So, you know, women did fall um, uh, under the sort of the sword on a number of cases and they were exposed to a great deal of danger but there were also at least a handful of women who actually fought themselves um, who dressed up as men and went off to serve uh, in the rival armies and these women were referred to at the time as she soldiers now we don't know how many of these women there were because obviously they were very much undercover some of them may simply have been there in disguise in order to go along with husbands or boyfriends friends or brothers even, but others clearly uh, went off to actually fight in a cause in which they believed. And there's a really uh, exciting example uh, of one woman who was sort of unmasked in the parliamentary camp at the end of the Civil War. Uh, And she actually specifically deposed that she had come to join the parliamentary forces and to disguise herself as a young man uh, to fight for a cause which she truly believed in, the cause of God, as she put it. So, you know, we'll never know how many of these undercover female soldiers there were but there were clearly a number of them and they aroused a great deal of interest amongst contemporaries uh, just as they do amongst all of us today. Yeah it's it's truly fascinating um, and I, I, to, to kind of begin uh, to look at the end of this period yes. then, um, the, the top Google question unsurprisingly uh, about this period is who won the civil war and why? Well, um, the Great Civil War that we've been mainly talking about today, the the first English Civil War, uh, that was won by the forces of the Parliament. 
And again, there are a number of different reasons that are put forward to explain why this was the case. Some historians believe that Parliament was always very likely to begin to win from the very beginning. And if we think about that, we can see why Parliament controlled London, which was by far the biggest city in the kingdom, the richest part of the kingdom as well. Um, from London, it also controlled the southeast of England and East Anglia, which again are the richest and most heavily populated areas. You could argue with that as its sort of power base, if you like, Parliament was always likely to win out over the king in the end. Um, in addition to that, it had an enormous advantage in the fact that it had control of the navy. So the navy went over to Parliament pretty much completely at the beginning of the Civil War. This meant that they controlled most of the ports, they controlled most of the, sort of the trade that was coming in from abroad. They could also deny the king's support from abroad, which he might have hoped for. So those two things together gave them a huge advantage. Um, we've already looked at the fact that in 1645, Parliament created this new model army, which was more efficiently organised, controlled, and to be honest, bigger uh, than most of those which had gone before. Uh, and that too is often seen as a sort of war winning weapon. And other historians argue that the king made sort of tactical mistakes. Some historians believe that if he'd won at the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644, which was fought uh, on his side by his nephew Rupert, he would never have lost the North. Um, if he hadn't sort of given battle with the parliamentarians at Naseby when he did in 1645, when he was essentially attacking an army that was much larger than his own, um, again, he might have been victorious. But I think the bulk of opinion really believes that um, the king had an uphill battle from the very beginning. And it was always likely that Parliament would eventually win once it brought its, its, its bigger resources effectively to bear against the king. And we shouldn't forget, too, uh, the crucial contribution of the Scots, because by marching into England to assist the Parliament in 1644 and essentially sort of stabbing the northern royalists in the back, as they would have seen it, I think from that moment onwards, it became very likely that the Parliament would win because the Scots had brought in a very large and powerful force to assist them, which the King found it very difficult, really, uh, to stand up against in the North. And as a result of their intervention, he lost control of that crucial area and was then really confined to Wales, the southwest of England and the area around Oxford, which could never hold up against the rest of England and Scotland alone. Uh, and it's after a, a second conflict then that the king is put on trial uh, and yes. executed. What can you say about, about those events that led to his, his execution? Well, I think from the king's perspective, although he was defeated um, in the First Civil War, he'd not given up hope. He believed that because he was king, um, no, no sort of no regime that was set up after the Civil War could possibly do without him. And he hoped that by dividing his enemies, he would eventually be able to sort of to pit them against each other, uh, to bring out his own forces and his support and to sort of to to reclaim uh, his sort of power, uh, his, his effective power, as well as his sort of titular power as king. And to this end, um, the king really indulged in sort of a, a series of sort of manoeuvres and negotiations. He managed to conjure up a new sort of coalition, partly composed of his own old royalist supporters, partly composed of disgruntled parliamentarians, partly control, uh, composed of Scots who were sort of unhappy with what parliament was doing in London. And he brought all of these forces together in what's usually known as the Second Civil War which took place in 1648. Um, the king was sort of in quasi-captivity in parliamentary hands at this time, so he wasn't in control of those forces, but he hoped that they would sweep him back to power, if you like. Um, but essentially, uh, the new model army, which had served parliament so well in the First Civil War, was now to do exactly the same in the Second Civil War. It defeated its various opponents one by one, and completely victorious by now, it returned really to sort of... Um, how can I put it, to seek conclusions with the king. And from the time of the Second Civil War, many in the New Model Army lost patience with Charles. They decided that he had not, um, that, you know, God had decided in the First Civil War that Parliament was right. Uh, by stirring up a Second Civil War, he'd gone against God's judgment and had sort of imbued the kingdom in blood for a second time. And they had decided that by doing so, he'd really sealed his own fate. This was when they decided to put the king on trial. Uh, and it was that really which led led um, to the, the, the setting up of a court 
uh, to try the king, to the king's trial uh, in early 1649 and to his eventual execution. And perhaps if I, um, we can add, I think we've got time for one final reader question. Yeah. This is from uh, I Smith on Instagram, who has asked, uh, were most of the population in favour of the Puritans at the time Charles I was executed? Uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps another broad one there, but it would be interesting to talk more broadly about support for his execution. Yeah, well, I think the, the crucial thing to say here is that the majority of the English people were never Puritans. Puritans were always, you know, a small number within the kingdom, you know, a relatively small proportion. Um, I think it's fair to say that during the Civil War, the Great Civil War, the Puritans were almost at the vanguard of the parliamentary cause. And there were many people who admired them um, because of the sort of the, the stoutness with which they stood up for parliamentary liberties and so forth. But as time went by, uh, more and more people became sort of increasingly worried about the radicalism, um, uh, uh, the radical direction in which Parliament was headed. I think that was already clear by the end of the First Civil War, when many of the most sort of zealous Puritans had actually coalesced into the New Model Army, which was becoming an increasingly radical force. Uh, there were many even quite conservative parliamentarians who didn't like the way that this was heading. Uh, there were many who were sort of worried about the way that the Puritans seemed to be pushing the English church in a much more radical direction. So I think you could say that even by the time that the First Civil War had come to an end, there's a sort of increasing unease, even amongst many who are not royalists, about the Puritans, if you like. And of course, the execution of the king takes this much further still. The great majority of English men and women did not support the execution of the king. They saw it as a terrifying event, one that might well bring down God's punishment on the realm as a whole. Uh, and it has to be stressed, really, that the execution of the king was brought through by a relatively narrow um, group of men uh, supported by the force, the military force of the New Model Army. And there was probably, again, only a relatively number of, a relatively small number of men and women across the kingdom who actually supported the king's execution. And from that point onwards, um, the Puritans may be in control, but they're really keeping that control through military force, through the power of the New Model Army. And the majority of the English people throughout the period from the king's death, uh, or the king's execution, I should say, until the restoration, they're never really fully behind the sort of the godly Puritan regime, which has a relatively narrow support base in the country as a whole. Oh, OK, well, I, I think if, if we go any further, we'll perhaps be going beyond the headline uh, of okay. the Civil War. Um, but that's all of the questions uh, from Google uh, and from uh, many of from our readers as well. Um, if I can just ask you, Mark, uh, to perhaps finish up, is there anything we haven't covered today that you really wish people were asking about this period? Well, I think that uh, a number of the areas which we've discussed already are areas that are very dear to my heart. I think the, the question of just how um, in impactful the civil war was on English people. That's been very much explored by historians lately. Uh, we're sort of now broadening this out to look not just at how ordinary men were affected, but how ordinary women were affected and children as well. Uh, one area that particularly interests me at the moment is the memory of the civil war. Um, you know, we've talked about how horrific the experience was for those who lived through it. Uh, obviously, people are well aware that that was the case. But I think one very interesting fact is how long it took for all of this to be forgotten. You know, those who'd lived through the Civil War were never to forget it. And they continued to talk about the wars or the troubles, as they termed them, for the rest of their lives. And I think this long-term legacy, the sort of the reverberations of the Civil War, uh, is something that a number of historians are increasingly sort of turning their attention to at the moment. Um, and we talked earlier about the injuries that soldiers had suffered and the petitions and the pensions that they received in later life. Again, I think it's really interesting to bear in mind that there were these large bodies of men and many were women too, who'd fought or at least supported King or Parliament during the 1640s and remained sort of committed supporters of those two sides for the rest of their lives. And in many ways, you could say that the Civil War divided the English people uh, and that those divisions were never really to be completely closed again. It had opened up this division between uh, roundheads and cavaliers, if you like, which was to ring down to sort of succeeding decades of divisions between English men and women. And that sort of legacy of the Civil War, I think, is something that's really fascinating. And as I say, scholars are beginning now to turn their attention to. That was Mark Stoyle. If you'd like to know more about the research on the petitions that Mark mentioned, from men who were wounded during the English Civil Wars and women who lost husbands in the fighting, visit civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. And that's all for today. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. We'll return tomorrow when Marion Turner will be discussing the life of Geoffrey Chaucer. Hey.